So we're going to talk about the greatness of God. I mean, if God is so great, what's our problem? I mean, that's really the thing to, to, to ponder, don't you think? If God is so great, what's the problem? I've been talking about, uh, what have I been talking about over the last two months? The armor of God. If you're if you, if you really hungry to see, hear that, you can hear it on the website. But the armor of God being, the, the phrase that we keep on talking about is that Paul says, your battle is not against uh, flesh and blood, it's against uh, the spiritual, uh, spiritual realms, which to the Western mind is freakish. You kind of go, I don't understand that. And so we're going to have our tea leaves read and our fortunes told and all that stuff. Well, that's just the sort of dark side of the spiritual world. And the resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of his spirit actually says that every Christian should be supernatural, should be empowered by something you can't see but you know, and has been released through Jesus. And so we're learning how to reclaim that and how to not be afraid of that and how to walk in that. And so I wanted to, you know, let's say we've got a fully armored, um, uh, armed soldier who actually has his armor that is, is, is coming from the inside. It's not something put on the out, from the outside because you can't face spiritual warfare with our manufactured stuff. We don't have the capacity to do that. So <clears throat> Jesus, when he was resurrected, because the whole purpose of Christianity is for us to live out of the release of God's power through his spirit. So many people live with Bible study and the cross as their, their, their focus and that's our foundation. But the Bible study and the cross lead us into life. And so often it's empty, dead Christians giving people crosses and Bible studies. And Jesus really says, I had to come in the flesh so that you would see what it's like for a human being to be filled with the stuff the Old Testament talks about. And it hasn't changed. So I want you, people with flesh, to be my word. And when they go, my word, when they look at you, you might, they might ask you, why are you different in a good way? And you might say, it's because of the God I love and who loves me. Now you can read the Bible. It's all there. It's all important. But we're going after lives that actually lead to transformation. And one of those things, you remember the prodigal story, the prodigal son? I'm not going to tell the whole story now. The prodigal son comes home and his brother is so irritated. No one, none of us is like that. You know, somebody deserves to be punished and they get away with it until God says, well, you got away with a lot. The older brother is so angry because the the younger brother is so forgiven. And I've been here all these years and I've worked for you. And, and the father comes out and says, yes, you have, but you've been just as miserable as son because you've been so dutiful, but there's no joy in you. Come inside because what's, what's the house like? You can, in the prodigal son, the story of the house is what? It's like what churches should be. God's house, it's dancing, music, food, joy. And so I started saying, you know, this whole thing of joy, because I have to speak to myself. Believe me, what I'm speaking about now is what I'm learning. It is not something I'm sitting in, just like Cheryl. I mean, I'm learning, but we're all learning. What's it like to live from a place of joy in the midst of circumstances of very seldom evoking the level of joy that we would like? What's it like to begin to learn, above our, learn to live above our circumstances? So that actually the way we live is drawing from something that is not in our circumstances. You are not of the world. And so if you're like me, you can live a lot of your life very cynical because you can go, well, it's easy for you, but... And then you, you, you place all those conditions next to it and most of us end up going, 
you know, we qualify to be miserable most of the time. We look at all our circumstances. So instead of joy, we look for sympathy or we look for blame. I don't know how that works for you, but for me, it doesn't get me very far. And usually with that kind of thing, self-pity comes creeping in. I think joy is better. And what if the Christians in, 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 in the world, um, and I'm not talking about this nauseating, happy, clappy, don't worry. I was going to play you that actually, don't worry, be happy, because it's quite a cool song. You listen to that song, and I was going to say to you, just keep straight faces, you're not allowed to smile. But it's just one of those songs. And, and, I think, and, and, and why I was going to play it to you was because I think that's what the Christians are meant to evoke in people, a sense of joy and hope that doesn't actually say, I don't care, that doesn't say, just smile and be happy. It just says, whatever our circumstances, there is hope. The funny thing is that with all the things that God gives, and, and he pours out his spirit, because in his spirit is this big gift basket of stuff. And that give, big gift basket of stuff is called the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. And so joy is the one we're looking at, but you, you don't receive joy. You know, Jesus said that the kingdom of God, that those who enter the kingdom of God need to be like little children. And what's the key with little children? When are the little children most joyful? When you're joyful. I was sitting at the back during the concert with, uh, in the same row as um, Alison and Steve and their little kid Nate was lying there and his feet were next to me and so I tickled his feet and he's got this big grin on his face and he pulls them up and he plays with us and she's saying, behave yourself, John. Uh, not Nate. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the, the kid responds. When, when are children full of smiles and joy? I don't think, you see, children, they don't pursue joy. Joy comes about when they are feeling safe. Joy comes about when they are feeling secure. Joy comes about when they're, I came up with this word this morning, in the playful presence of someone they're secure with. And I actually think God wants to say he's a playful presence. He's a playful presence. But you don't understand. I've got all these things. And I think God would say, I do understand, and your problem is that all these things you hold on to separate from me. But if you let me share your whole life, playful presence actually will be with you. What do you do with kids when they're afraid or you're going through something that they might be afraid? You hold them close, you talk to them, and sometimes you even play games to distract them. What if that's what God wants to do with you and me? Where he, he speaks to us and says, I am with you. So you go for a walk and you've got this bear like, but he's left now. And you've got this bear, and, and, and you're scared of the bear. Well, what happens if you have a lion next to you? You'd say, bring on the bear. We are just like lambs, but we have a lion next to us. So the issue we are learning is, how big is our God? And if we are next to a big God, you can, you can be the smallest little runt in the play school, but if you're next to the biggest guy, nobody's going to touch you. The company you keep. Joy is a byproduct of the company we keep. It's not about just hoping you're happy. I just wanted to take that teaching that Jesus gave in John 17, and I'm really not going to go through it other than to jump into that word that he says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that, you, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He wants the full measure of joy in his people. Much of the church that we've grown, I've grown up in is like the older brother. You're way too happy. You're way too emotional. I hate the way you dance. Because when you come to church, you've got to be reverent. Have you ever tried being reverent in a marriage? See how it works for you in relationships. Or your kids are reverent to you. What does that mean? They're scared of you. They actually, 
dumb down all their behavior, and when they leave your presence, they go, whew, thank God that's over. If you want to hurt God, that's what hurts Him. And He's hurt because He's been misrepresented. He is one whose joy is full. And you look at the people who followed Him, and their circumstances were the pits. Look at Jesus. I mean, we can sw- sing sweet songs about Jesus, and we can make you know, sweet pictures about Jesus, but Jesus' life was tough. He was a Jew living in an occupied territory where they were not sweet and kind. People got killed all the time. When those James and John, those guys were fishing, they had to give most of the stuff, the money they made to the taxes. Everything was taxed to pay for the Roman uh, Empire. And you try and have a protest and say, we have rights. You'd be on the end of a spear. And Jesus lived in a time of great violence, great hardship, great poverty. But if you read the story of his life, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know his whole childhood up until 30. Nazareth was not a big town. And he didn't have lots of stuff. And it probably would amaze us as to how much he worked. And Jesus ends up being flogged and he ends up being crucified. And out of that comes the resurrection and the release of the Spirit over the church. And the early Christians emerge. And the first famous early Christian is Saul, who becomes Paul. And he's the one I want to focus on this morning because because Paul picks up this theme of joy. But if you look at Saul's life, Paul's life, it's also hard. Now, Paul could have stayed as Saul, and he could have been very comfortable in the Jewish religious tradition. He could have become a leader of the Jewish synagogue in Jerusalem. He was very well educated, he had lots of connections, and he had lots of authority at a very young age. And his testimony later was that when I saw Jesus, when Jesus encountered me, all of that became absolutely worthless. And he spent the next 40 years of his life going through hardship. And yet through the hardship and the letters he wrote, he says, I count it all joy because my life for the first time has purpose and meaning, direction and relationship. And so Paul not only talks, but he lays hands on people and people get healed. He sees the power of God. He is just like Jesus. Because Jesus is living in him. And every single one of us has that we can be just like Jesus because he lives in us. I mean, how would you like that? How would you like to live just like Jesus? When you lay hands on people, they get healed. When you talk to them, they start getting thirsty for something. There's no reason why you can't. Diana was was talking about learning how to be more um, vulnerable. And one of the words that God's given me recently has been this idea of uh, the, the phrase was need to know. Living with people on a need to know basis. I only divulge as much as you need to know. And that's going to be not much. And I carry around in me a lot of stuff that you don't need to know. It usually comes under pride. And God seemed to say, my people need to learn how to communicate and share with each other on a need to know basis. But the need to know basis is that you need to know each other far more vulnerably and openly because in the, in the sharing of your lives will be the need to know what I'm saying. That your need to know what I'm doing in your life is actually dependent on your sharing your life with others. It's just an invitation. It's not a rebuke. The same with that word about um, we, we contend against flesh. We do not contend against flesh and blood. We t- contend against spirituality and powers. And that word has two edges to it. Yes, in everybody else we contend against the spiritual forces that are behind what they do. So you don't just see the person. You love the sinner and you hate the sin is, is, is another way of saying it. But you do contend against the flesh and blood that is in you. 
and the flesh and blood is in you, is that which rises up that says, I protest, I'm angry, I'm this. All the things in me that cause me to protest against what happens. And all God does with that is say, now you know what you need to work on. Because you need to die to that. Because dead people don't feel. Dead people don't get offended. Dead people don't get insulted. So you know how not dead you are by the degree to which you experience those things. It's awkward, isn't it? Because we often go, I wonder what God's saying. It's really easy. What's going on in you right now? What are you feeling? What rises up? What irritates? What struggles? What causes you to be afraid? That's what God's doing. He's saying, here I am. How can I be here for you right now? You see, if you want joy, you've got to find the presence of God in the midst of life. And how do you find the presence of God in the midst of life? Well, just look at your life. And he's there. But if you try and get all religious, you you push all of these things away until you get to some little space that hardly exists and then you try and force it into that. It's very tiresome. Are you following me? One one person is. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. Let me just land this in in something. Because at the end of the day, this is meant to be a very encouraging word, believe it or not. It's meant to actually give us permission to be a work in progress and to know that God's presence is with us. Listen to what Paul says. I mean, 2 Corinthians 11:23. I used to, and I still do, get very moved by this. Because Paul is dealing with a lot of people who are strutting around being good Christians. And they, don't, they haven't really earned a lot of what they think about. And there's self-confident boasting he talks about. And Paul was not this, if, if, if he was cast by Hollywood, he wouldn't be, uh, he wouldn't be six foot, uh, you know, blonde and, and, and good looking and all that stuff. He, they, they mocked him. Some of the records talk about Paul being a little man with a bald head and a beaked nose. And when he spoke, he made some funny sounds. You know, he wasn't this superstar to look at, but when he spoke, no matter how his voice sounded, there was power and authority in his presence, but you wouldn't know it to look at him. And so he speaks and he says um, in verse 2 Corinthians 11, verse. Let's just go from verse 23. He's already talked about his education and he says, I am more, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Five times. What's five times 40? 200 minus four or five. You're going to be um, flogged 195 times for Jesus. If you want to leave the room right now, you can leave the room. I don't know whether it's completely true, but that Oregon massacre a few days ago in the school, apparently the guy said, if you're a Christian, stand up. Or are you a Christian? If you're Christian, he shot you. What would you do? What do you do if somebody walked in right now, walked up here and said, who's who's, who's going to die for Jesus? It's sobering to think. Some of us would get my fingers crossed, and if I live, I can witness for him, so I'll duck this one. You've actually just denied him. And so these guys lived in this kind of place where that was possible any time. And so he speaks about it. I've been flogged nearly 200 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger, see it sounds dangerous, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? That's vulnerable. 
If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness so that God will be praised. And eventually he grapples with God about getting rid of something he calls his thorn in the flesh. And then he says, God said to him, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is so countercultural, where he, he puts this list out there and there's nothing about... It's unfair. Where is God? If he loved me, he wouldn't do this. If God loved me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. His idea was, if something's happening to me, it means I'm doing something for Jesus. If it's causing that much of a response, I'm on the right track. Because his life wasn't about how do I avoid things. It was just how do we go through them. Whatever it takes, I'm going. And this is the guy who's going to, all through his writings, speak about joy. Speaks a lot about joy. So he must know something that is worth knowing. And he doesn't pretend, because in 2 Corinthians 1.8, he says things like, I despaired even of life. It wasn't that he never had bad times. It's just that they weren't where he stayed. So then he wrote Philippians, and I just want to dip into that, because Philippians is almost known as the letter of joy. And he, he mentions joy 16 times. Verse 14 I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And he's in prison. But you see, there's this thing that we th- we've, we're learning and that is I can, lear- I can live trying to get to something or I can live from what God has already done. And so from that prodigal son, older brother story, I can live from the house into which I've been welcomed or I can be live trying to earn my way into that house. And God says, like he said to the older brother, what are you doing out here? Jesus has already made a way for you. In fact, I was reading about that um, awful thing at the school in Oregon. And I just noticed an article this morning, actually. One of the kids lay on the floor and pretended to be dead because the blood of somebody who was killed was on them. They lived because somebody else died and shed their blood. I don't want to push that, but I'm just saying it's a, it's a, you, you can't miss the, the metaphor. And so Paul has known what it's like to be lost, to be arrogant, and then to be found and to be released. And he has this kind of sense of nothing. When he knows what he's capable of and he knows what he's been rescued from, it kind of goes, there's nothing else to, nothing touches it. And so his whole life is then, I just want others to, to share some of the hope and some of the grace that I experienced. And one of the ways for us to grow in joy and grow in the, the reality of God is just to be real with ourselves to be honest about where we are and to be hungry to say, I want, I want more of the real thing. That's kind of been, it's been one of the few things in my personality that I think have helped, that I've always wanted authenticity. I've always wanted more. I've always wanted, I, I kind of look in the mirror and say, if this is it, God, it's depressing. And if this, my experience of you is it, then it's depressing. There's got to be more. I want more of that. You want more joy? Nobody does. Well, Father, I just bless depression in the name of Jesus. I just pray that you just pour it out over these bunch. Do you want joy? Do you want peace? Do you want faith? Do you want hope? You see, the thing is, the the funny thing is that sometimes our best friends are the despair and the criticism. Some of our best friends are the things that we actually say we don't want, but we do like. It's amazing how many people like depression. It's amazing how many people like anger. It's amazing how many people like the negative because it justifies their life and it causes them not to have to take responsibility. And it's very hard to sort of speak firmly to somebody who's depressed and you don't know how I feel. 
And I've been there, so I do know that. But there's also this element of, of the allies of our lives are very often those things that cripple us. You know what I mean? Self-justification and pride and blame and all that stuff. And Paul just breathes into us hope with his, his life and his lifestyle. won't go on much longer. I'm going to show you a little clip in a minute. He says this in 1 Corinthians, 1 Philippians uh, verse 19. I will continue to rejoice. I mean, he's, he's just said before that, um, it's, it's a, I find him amazing. Um, he says, I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord because they've looked at Paul and said, look how he suffers. I mean, he, when we go and visit him, he doesn't ask us to feel sorry for him. He's basically telling us how to stay free. And he says, I'm totally free. These chains are just my sort of, a, you know, bracelets. Because I've got these Praetorian guards captive and they've got to listen to me. Isn't that cool? And if they let go, they, they're killed. So they have to. So I talk and I pray and I share and I laugh with them. And I suck to be you. You're my prisoner. I turn it all around. And I find as I turn it around, the joy starts flowing. I don't feel so much a victim now. I feel like in the midst of this awful circumstance, somehow God is with me. And he says... It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm out he- I-, I am put here for the de- defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. In other words, you know, some people are, are, the, are the evangelists who sort of take the big collection, live in the big cars and the big houses and say God has blessed them, the prosperity. Paul's response at the end of it was, but what does it matter? I wish I could learn that better. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Because his God is so big, he says, even that guy who's misusing your gospel, you can actually use. So I'm going to believe that you can use that, even though I don't condone it, I don't want to be part of it, but I'm still going to be rejoicing because God is speaking and using people, even though it's not what I would do, and I actually disagree with it. But what does it matter? I mean, that just takes a whole lot of stuff off you. It's not my problem. We could qualify everything here. I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. How about living like that? Whatever we're in right now, I rejoice because I know that God will actually wrap this all up in some way in the future. I wish he would hurry up, but I, I know that he will, and he, he will ultimately be victorious. You suddenly change it from this victim to patience, from this victim to go, we're just going to persevere through this from this victim to a place of I'm, I'm, expecti- I'm expecting something better. And because I'm, I'm also growing in my need to know communication, I'm sharing it with people. This is where I am. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm hoping for. And sometimes, if you're like me, I'm not sharing you what I'm hoping for. I'm just telling you where I am, and that's not always pretty. And I need to hear words coming back to help me find back where I am. That's what we ne- the need to know thing is about. You look around you. Look at the people next to you. You need them. But you need to show up for each other a lot more in an encouraging way, being unshockable, being able to know that in your presence there is no judgment. You might not ally with your stuff, but we'll say, well, what, where is Jesus here? You see, for joy to be manifest, we need to have safe places and good relationships. And that's what Paul ultimately says. He says uh, in chapter 2, Verse 1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete 
by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Joy is totally intertwined with relationship and with kindness and with goodness. If you go to John 15, you can get the same thing from Jesus where he talks about abiding in the branch of the vine and loving one another. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Um, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater has no one than this to lay down their lives for their friends. Joy is totally in the middle of sacrificial lifestyles and friendships. Let's watch a little video from, this is uh, Wendy Backland speaking about uh, pursuing joy. We, we heard her a few weeks ago in Qualicum and, and this, there's just a clip that I thought was quite cool. I realized that you won't make time for what you don't value. And until you actually get a real value for joy, you're not going to make time for it. What if your health and your strength depended on you having some joy? How do you get it, though? One of the things we've discovered is there's not much joy in churches that are very religious. I was kind of asking the Holy Spirit, you know, why is that? How come there's no joy in religious churches? And he said, well, there's not much joy because in, under religion, you only celebrate perfection. Families, on the other hand, celebrate progress. There's just not a lot of celebrating in a religious church because there's no perfect church. And if you're waiting to celebrate who you are until you're perfect, you're not going to have any joy. When our kids were learning to walk, we didn't wait till they were walking perfectly to celebrate. Even, you know, when my first grandchild was learning to walk, my daughter would text me, we'd be in some other state or country, and she'd go, Caden just took a step. And, you know, we're all celebrating. I'm telling Steve, Caden took a step. Not once did she text me to say, Caden fell down again. And she didn't tell him to stop trying to walk until they could do it perfectly. But do you know what we do to ourselves? For instance, if we're struggling with anger or some issue in our life, and we're praying, we're getting counseling, we're working with God on this and pulling in the Holy Spirit. And say you used to have a problem with getting angry every single day and you've gone two weeks without getting angry and after two weeks you blow up. Do you know what most of us do? We hit ourselves over the head and said, I knew I didn't change. I am a failure. I can't lick anger. What if we became like parents and celebrated the fact, oh, I went two weeks without being angry. Do you know why that's better? Do you know what happens when you hit yourself over the head with your failure? You're condemning yourself, and condemnation actually robs you of motivation to continue. If you're telling yourself, I'm a failure, I can't change that's not motivating. If condemnation could motivate you to change, Jesus didn't need to die. I'm really into being aware of what I'm thinking and how it is affecting me. When you start condemning yourself, when you have a failure, 
and you condemn yourself and you rehearse how bad you are, sometimes just stop in the middle of it and think to yourself, is this motivating me? Or does this make me want to give up? Now, if that's working for you, that's fine. But for those of you who that's not working for, what helped for me was I started celebrating progress instead of perfection. I don't get angry as often. I don't stay angry as long. This must be working. When children are learning to walk and they fall down, they don't think, "Ah, I'll never be able to walk. You know, one of the things that I share almost everywhere I go, because it so radically helped shift the way I think, because I used to always get my my potential and my identity from my past. And God just asked a simple question once. He said, Wendy, what would happen to a baby if it got its potential and its future from its past? I've never walked before. I don't have the gift of walking. And when I tried to walk, I fell down. I'll never be able to walk. Sound like somebody you know? You realize that you are born again of the Spirit? Isn't that cool? I mentioned it before, that whole thing of taking that child and saying that's how God works. When God releases things into us by His Spirit, say He's giving us joy. I mean, He's giving us it all, but say the focus is on joy. He always delivers it in seed form. And so that child has the DNA to walk and, and, and that needs encouragement. So does joy, so does peace, so does everything. Take hold of it. And that whole freeing word of, of, of celebrate the process well, I've, I've got it up my office wall. It's a process. Everything is a process. A process. Process? It's been correcting me for 30 years. But, th- you know, there's, there's, this, there's, there's this... What is it like to give yourself permission to be a work in progress? Progress. What's it like for you to actually start loving the, pro- loving the learning? And so there's an element. What's it like if you stop actually justifying the poverty of, the, of your spirit and the, and the imperfection and the poverty of your life where you just go, well, if God wants me to do that, he'll give it to me. He won't. He's already given it to you. But you actually start walking, believing that there's more to come. And so she was very funny when she, she told that before about you know, never getting a text from her daughter saying, you know, why aren't babies depressed? Because they fail so much. But they see modeled around them people walking and they see people who are walking rejoicing when they try and then they walk. We tend to be exactly the opposite. We tend to belittle the trying. That's what Diana was talking about. I mean, it fits right into this model. You participated, you tried, you showed up. That's what gives me joy, says the father. I remember playing squash and waiting. I've told you this before. And, and, and sitting watching some guys playing and we were playing Ron Robin and thinking, well, if Jesus was playing squash, he'd be this amazing squash player. And if Jesus played golf, he'd be this amazing golfer. And Jesus' spirit just said, no, I wouldn't. That I'm totally human. When I'm in a human form, I was in human form, so I'd probably suck at golf. And I probably couldn't, you probably beat me at squash. That was a cool image. But he said, I'll teach you how to play without getting offended. I'll teach you how to learn, how to lose graciously. I would teach you how to put the right spin on what you do without having your identity locked into how you perform. Let's stand. Father, just pray for your spirit to to land this word in our spirits right now. God wants to drop this word from your head into your heart if it hasn't already gone there as a word of encouragement, as a word of blessing. He's pouring out joy 
over you like oil right now. Receive it. Joy, joy, joy. But in, in many ways, he says, don't, don't chase after the joy. Chase after Jesus and joy will come. What is it that you're telling yourself today that is not bringing you life, but bringing you discouragement or death or hopelessness or despair or just nothing? What is it that you're speaking over yourself or your circumstances, a relationship, anything? What is it that they're like stones in a, in a, in a bed of flower bed and, and God wants us to take those stones and remove them to make room for the joy to grow? If there are any words that are, are, are bringing death into your spirit, discouragement, give them to Jesus. Take the opposite. In other words, nothing will ever change. Thank you, Jesus, that change is in the air. Thank you that you're the God of change. Thank you that I'm going to be expecting new things. Thank you that you're not finished with me. Thank you that you're right here with me right now. And because you're right with me right now, and you're big and you're good and I'm your best friend and you, do lo- you love me more than I love my children, I'm not afraid of the bears. What is robbing you of joy? Because Jesus says you're not of this world. And he says this world has conditional joy. The joy is dependent on the circumstances. The joy is dependent on finances. or rela- It's dependent on a lot of things. But as a little child, when the father is present, joy can come in the morning because the father is there. So the child is safe. And God the Father says, you are safe with me. I am your provider. I am the source of joy for you. Be still and know. So what does God want to remind you of, release in you this morning, encourage you with? Because Jesus didn't suffer on the cross and be resurrected and pour out his spirit. Paul didn't labor for 40 years to pass on a message that had no meaning for the people who lived in the day they would hear it as it was for me, so it can be for you. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to release the essence of joy into every person here right now. I ask you to release your presence. I ask you to give people words of comfort, words of hope, words of encouragement for their particular circumstance because no one here stands as an orphan. No one here is loved by God because of the performance or the lack thereof. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. So if there's no performance required, all that's required is to receive. And some of you won't feel anything. If you're like me often, I don't feel anything, but it's received by faith. Thank you, Jesus, that you are in me. Thank you that you are for me. Thank you that you are going to release joy in me. And I just speak that over this body. I I speak a word of joy, a new season of joy in the name of Jesus, that in our songs, in our demeanor, in our hope, in our gathering together, in our living day by day, joy will rise up in a greater measure than we've ever seen because it is rooted in Jesus. It's not going to be fluffy, it's going to be deep. You can flog us and we'll still have joy. Whether we're sick, whether we're well, whether we have a job, whether we don't have a job, we're going to have joy because our joy is our hope and our hope is in Jesus and in one another in the community that has drawn us in. And we will weep with one another and we will rejoice with one another because God is great. So, Father, will you expand the faith in each of us to believe for what we don't yet see? So as we, as we finish today, what's rising up in you that will give you hope for tomorrow? What do you want more of? Ask him. The, the language of the kingdom is ask, seek, and knock. What do you want more of? Usually it's the opposite of the thing that you most have that's negative. And he says, all I have is yours. All I have is yours. So receive. Receive the more. Ask me. I won't give you stones when you ask for a plan. God is 
actually very good at being very specific. I'm going to speak healing over bodies that are sick. If there's pain in your body, if there's any kind of disease, we speak the blood of Jesus over you. Speak healing. Lay hands on the people next to you. Just speak blessing over them. And Father, we don't, we're not going to interview anyone. We're not going to talk. We're just going to speak blessing. And just speak healing blessing in the name of Jesus. Healing in the name of Jesus. Body, mind or spirit. Father, just pour into each person here whatever it is that they need. Your kingdom is enough. Thank you, Father. Think of yourself. I heard somebody teaching this in England. Like You're just a drain pipe. And, you, and God's flowing through you. He just says, thank you that I can use you. Bless Bless, bless. You haven't got anybody around you to, you, you're missing out on the drain pipes. I, I put your hands on each other. If you want to receive it, you're going to have to do it. So, Father, thank you. Joy released. What we're doing this now is just waiting. I know I could do a quick prayer, but I'm just waiting and letting God flow. Just letting his presence flow, letting him touch people. Just thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. We want this word to go deep into our spirit. You're not left out, whoever you are. Some of us aren't even used to the fact that, we, you know, what do you mean I don't have to perform? We're not used to being just loved unconditionally. Some of us don't know how to, we, I don't even have the energy to believe anything for where I am right now. And God says, well, I believe for you. So I'm flowing into you resources to help you. Thank you, Father. Thank you. And I pray that you will give each person evidence this week of your spirit breathing into them right now. And I pray that you'll rise up in us in an excitement and anticipation for what is to come. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.